For the ones going above and beyond. For the ones reaching out, helping out, and lending a hand. For the ones people count on. You can count on Granger. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. Backed by 24-7 customer support and specialists to help with hard-to-find products. Because you've got everyone's back. We've got yours. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. Today's story is so good, it writes itself. And for some of you from Montreal, you may be aware of the case of uh, Debbie Robinson and her death as the ultimate bitter punchline. What you may not know is its relation to another case, the unsolved murder of Teresa Pearson. So today's story begins bitter, turns sort of sweet, uh, then bitter again. We're going today to the neighborhood of LaSalle on the island of Montreal. LaSalle is a neighborhood in the southwest corner of Montreal. To the west is Lachine, then Dorval, then the West Island. To the north is Verdun, northeast, then Point Saint-Charles. And even if you've never been to Montreal, a lot of this geography you know by now. Point Saint-Charles, of course, is where uh, Sharon Pryor disappeared. Um, And LaSalle um, is connected to the South Shore by the Mercier Bridge. If you cross the Mercier Bridge, then you're you're at the uh, Kahnawake uh, Mohawk Reserve in St. Catharines, where uh, we told the story of Ellen uh, Ertubiz. Today, we're going back to 1983, 1984. 1982, the year prior to these events, uh, was the last time I actually lived in Montreal. And as I said, uh, many of you may remember the case of Debbie Robinson. What you may not know is exactly one year earlier, almost identical circumstances played out in LaSalle with a much less fortunate outcome. And keep in mind, today's story is about two young women and two very different murders. This is Who Killed Teresa?
The story of Teresa Pearson came to me from a friend of her family. This friend contacted me and asked if I would help dig up any information on the case. So after some digging, I, I told him I was interested, interested enough uh, to do a podcast on the case. And they replied, what's a podcast? So <laughs> I sent them an example. I sent them the case of Francine da Silva. And after that, I never heard from them again. So... <laughs> I was originally going to do this episode right after Fran Francine's episode in the spring. Um, it's been sitting in the in the hopper that long, but for reasons that will become pretty evident, I decided to wait until September. As I said, I, I was living in Montreal the summer prior to these events, so. I was there the summer of 82. In 83, you had uh, Pearson. Uh, in 84, you had Robinson. In 85, you had Francine uh, De Silva. It's kind of the sequence in the summer, a new wave and all that. I had um, I had gotten an internship with some, you know, shitty computer company like Wang Computer or something, um, and which consisted of me t uh, taking the metro and the bus to somewhere in Lachine, to, you know, some industrial park, and sitting in a cubicle all day, uh, twiddling my thumbs. I lived at this apartment, um, used to call The Wedge, which is just at the foot of Mount Royal, around where the uh, McGill Stadium is. Uh, I remember being pretty lonely. I was, I was alone. Uh, you know, I'd go to concerts. I think I saw King Crimson that summer at Place de la Nation. I saw Craftwork, I think, at the Theatre Saint-Denis. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time uh, who was living in Ottawa, so I would take the Voyager bus to Ottawa on weekends to visit her, um, which is funny because uh, Francine and her friend Carol said they used to hang out sometimes in, in the lounge at the Voyager bus station, which was around the corner where they were living. Um, so it was very, very likely that um, we uh, we might have <laughs> actually run into each other at one time or another. Teresa Terry Pearson went missing on Wednesday, May 18th. 1983, one week before she was due to graduate from a secretarial course at La Salle High School, also known at that time as Collège La Salle, located on Rue George. Pearson was a planning to attend Cégep in the fall of 1984. The 19-year-old girl who never drank, smoked, took drugs, or hung out, was last seen getting off a city bus after school at the corner of Boulevard La Salle and 90th Avenue. Her home, where she lived with her parents, 
was a two-minute walk from that bus stop, a straight shot down LaSalle Boulevard, which borders the St. Lawrence River to Terrasse Greenfield. So if you're walking down that boulevard, as I say, St. Lawrence is to your left. You can see the Mercier Bridge, and across the water you can see St. Catharines and Kanawake to give you kind of your territorial bearings. The Pearsons lived at the end of the cul-de-sac at Terrace Greenfield in a duplex, 9339 Terrace Greenfield. Pearson's body was found later the same day in the underground garage of an apartment building at 9379 LaSalle Boulevard. The apartment building is located a little further along down the street from where she lived, about a three-minute walk uh, from the bus stop. So again, if you're going down Boulevard LaSalle, uh, point of view to your left is the St. Lawrence, and to your right would be that apartment complex. And she's found in the garage uh, uh, garage of the uh, apartment. Pearson was identified by her uncle, David Mooney, Uh, And in the autopsy report, he says, I'm the uncle. She was hit on the head in the garage of a building at 9379 Boulevard LaSalle. I was advised by the police. Teresa Pearson's body was found between two cars by a tenant around 4 p.m., just a few short hours after she got off the bus two blocks away at La Salle and 90th. She was found on her back and died of a fractured skull and massive brain hemorrhage brought on by 10 blows to the head, possibly by a tire jack bar. Her school bag and books were found nearby. Her school bag contained $2.00. Her purse, which police believed contained no money, was missing. There were no obvious signs she had been sexually assaulted. In the early days of the investigation, police were looking for a red car that was spotted in the alley beside the basement garage on LaSalle Boulevard. Police later discarded the lead when they were able to track down the owner and question him and they became convinced of his innocence. Police later apprehended another man and subjected him to a lie detector test. After concluding, quote, we didn't think he was giving the right answers to our questions. (laughs) This lead ultimately went nowhere. At her funeral that Victoria Day weekend, family, friends, and classmates seemed dazed, confused, and angry. The Reverend Maurice Nerny of the Verdun United Church tried to express the grief of the crowd. I won't try to find the words to describe what kind of a person Terry was. You were a part of Terry, and Terry is a part of you. That's the best way to describe her. Teresa Pearson's coroner's report was signed August 9, 1983, and it contained this curious statement. 
To date, despite all the research done by the investigators, it is impossible to reconstruct the circumstances of this crime and to identify a culprit. Culprits. A public inquiry would be of no use. Well, that's for damn sure. <laughs> On that, we can agree. A public inquiry would be useless. <laughs> and with that, the police closed the book on the case of Teresa Pearson. It's been 36 years. Her murder remains unsolved. Exactly one year later, we're still in LaSalle. It's the same college, the same high school, another graduation approaching, another secretarial student goes missing. 18-year-old Debbie Robinson disappears on Tuesday, May 22nd, 1984, around 6 a.m. after she had delivered 10 of about 40 newspapers on her route from her home at 1064 Sylvester Street in LaSalle. Debbie had been a carrier for the Montreal Gazette for about five years. The 1983 Christmas edition of the Gazette featured Debbie and a group of other carriers in a full-page ad uh, on December 16th, thanking them for their service. And uh, I'll, I'll post that um, ad online on the website, theresalore.com, uh, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E, point com. Uh, there's a lot of interesting visual elements to this ep episode, uh, not the least of which are... Um, Obviously, maps uh, in a case like this uh, where the, the geographical reference points are so tight, they're so close, maps become very, very important. So I'll put that there. Uh, it's bizarre to me. I was a, a carrier uh, for the Montreal Gazette when I was a kid. Um, so to see this is just very, very bizarre. Um, uh, with, you know, at the same time of year in, a, you know, the tiny neighborhood of LaSalle, practically the same age as 18 and 19, both secretarial students. Um, one turned, one goes, goes missing and turns up dead. The other goes missing. We'll, we'll see what happened. Her mother, Glenda Robinson, describes Debbie as a well-liked kid. She cooks. She sews. She would never take a lift with somebody she didn't know. Debbie had just graduated from the secretarial program at LaSalle High School, and she was scheduled for a job interview with a local insurance company that very afternoon. She never showed up. Her newspaper bag with the undelivered papers were found in the driveway of the duplex where she lived. This duplex was under a 10-minute drive from where Teresa Pearson disappeared one year earlier. 
Very quickly, the community, police, and media pick up on the uncanny similarities between the disappearances of Debbie Robinson and Teresa Pearson. Um, as we said, both are teenagers from LaSalle, both disappear close to their graduations from the same secreta- secretarial program at the same school. Both knew each other at school. One student from LaSalle High School comments, If I was one of the girls planning to take the course next year, I'd be scared. Despite concerns, police feel the similarities are coincidental. Though police search empty buildings, warehouses, and wooded areas around LaSalle, they classify the case as a missing person and part of their normal police work. Within 48 hours, the Robinson family is critical of police efforts, voicing concern the police are keeping too low a profile and aren't putting enough personnel on the case. On May 25th, the Montreal Gazette offers a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the disappearance of their carrier, Debbie Robinson. The case is now assigned to Montreal detectives specializing in kidnap and extortion cases. Almost immediately, a $100,000 ransom demand is made by an anonymous caller to police. Later that evening, on Friday, May 25th, Three days after she first disappeared, a miracle. Debbie Robinson is found safe. Angus and Annie Dixon return home from a two-week vacation in Toronto. Checking the basement, Mr. Dixon notices that the door to the basement furnace room is bolted. Unbolting the door, he finds Debbie on the concrete floor of the eight-by-four-foot room housing an oil tank. The Dixons live at 1073 Bellic Avenue, almost immediately behind the Robinson's Sylvester Street home, 60 meters from where she disappeared from her front driveway. Debbie Robinson tells police she had been hit on the head and knocked unconscious while doing her morning paper route that Tuesday morning. She didn't see her captors, didn't know how she ended up in the basement closet. She was left with a jug of water and a small milking stool. Later, Annie Dixon told the press she had an intuition about Debbie Robinson. Having read about the abduction in the Toronto papers, When she got home, she immediately sent her husband to check on the furnace room. I sent my husband down to look, 
And there she was. She fell into his arms. During the nearly four-day ordeal, hundreds of volunteers showed up to search for Debbie, including friends, strangers, former Gazette paper carriers, and the mother of a young girl who was brutally raped and murdered in the spring of 1975. Yvonne Pryor. A neighbor of the Dixons comments in an interview with La Presse that he was at his residence and parked his car on the street in front of the Bellic home all that week. He heard no screams, no noise, and did not observe anyone coming or going from the residence. By the following week, Police are tight-lipped about the investigation. Detective uh, Gilbert Buddy Gagnon states that until the kidnapping is solved, police do not intend to discuss the case further. He calls reports that police will put Robinson under hypnosis to answer questions surrounding her disappearance imaginative. The next day, police announced that Debbie Robinson has agreed to undergo hypnosis and to take a lie detector test. Debbie's mom says Debbie has nothing to hide. All she can remember is that she was struck on the back of the head by two masked men who visited her three times during her captivity. June 4th, 1984, Debbie Robinson is administered a lie detector test by the SPVM. Montreal police won't say why Robinson was asked to take the, quote, controversial experiment. All I can tell you is that the case is still being treated as a kidnapping, says Detective Sergeant Pierre Tetrault. Debbie says she agreed to take the test to help clear up any doubts about her mysterious abduction. Debbie's parents say they are fed up with the grueling hours of interrogation police have put their daughter through. Debbie begins to break down and cry before television cameras, which catch her leaving the police headquarters. In an editorial in the June 4th Montreal Gazette, LaSalle resident P. Boisvert writes that police handling of the case was monumental in its inefficiency. They gave the people who were out searching for Debbie no help at all. If anything, they hindered our efforts. The only time there was obvious police involvement was on Friday evening after Debbie had been found. Then the streets swarmed with police. Where were they on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday? The final insult was on Thursday night when two of my neighbors arrived home at 3 a.m. After having searched all day and night, they came out of their homes on Friday morning and found parking tickets on their cars. What were police thinking to be ticketing cars on that particular street? On June 9th, popular Montreal journalist Ted Blackman 
voices similar complaints in his Gazette column. I'm going to include the majority of this article because it rings a deafening bell in our current climate with Quebec police. See if any of this sounds familiar. Several valid questions were raised after the abduction of the Gazette carrier Debbie Robinson in LaSalle. How quickly did police move? Why did it take some 36 hours for her status to move from missing person to suspected abduction? And only then bring in expert kidnapping detectives. Did this delay preclude a systematic search of unoccupied homes? In short, was the Montreal Urban Police sleeping at the switch and leaving one family's agonizing predicament to the luck of routine patrols instead of the experienced, detail work of specialized detectives? We don't have these answers. We don't have them because every question on the matter was directed by MUC police away from the officers involved and to the department's public relations office. In this case, to Constable Charles Poxon. And this is me speaking here. I'll break a second. Here you can sub in Guy Lapointe, Martin Aslin, or any of the litany of police public relations puppets that have come after him. Now, Charlie Poxon is a fine guy who busts his butt. He takes reporters' calls. He's available for radio interviews. He explained patiently that police followed policy formulated by commanding officers. The Debbie Robinson investigation was handled according to the book. Who wrote the book? Is the book well written? If not, will the authors stand up to its inspection? Poxon is not at liberty to answer under current procedures. All inquiries are directed to him, even if you track down a detective who dissents. Can't say a word, call public relations. A station house cop replies to the most routine query. They'll bust me a rank if I'm caught talking to the media. In this way, the upper echelon of the MUC police has protected itself from the accountability in a way that would astonish the public in the U.S., where elected sheriffs and district attorneys are properly grilled over the efficiency of investigations. On June 16, 1984, the Montreal Gazette runs a full-page article in their Saturday edition on the fallibility of lie detector tests. How lie detector tests can twist the truth is an article which warns that lack of regulations puts individuals' reputations under clouds. At the time, there were no fixed standards for lie detector tests in Quebec, and the Supreme Court of Canada, of course, said results of such tests were not uh, admissible as evidence in criminal proceedings. Recall that in the Theresa Pearson case, a suspect was apprehended and subjected to a lie detector test, but police let the guy go and um, you know for years uh, the fall to um, 
tool of expertise in Quebec police has been the lie detector test. And in fact, it's a it's an element of promotion to become a polygrapher in uh, in the Quebec police is is a step up, and it's considered. Um, they really love the lie detector test, um, even though it's, <laughs> you know, whenever somebody, he took a lie detector test and he passed, so the case is closed. Sorry. Um, they really rely on it. When, when everybody else in the world knows, uh, you, you know, they're about as accurate as luck. Um, psychopaths can beat them. Um, that is uh, no surprise to any listener outside of Quebec, but... Quebec seems to have this stigma, this to this day, this strong belief that um, they are the gold standard in police investigation. The following month, on July 28, 1984, the Montreal Urban Community Police announced that Debbie's case is closed. An uncle comments that Debbie is resting at the family cottage and... She seems to have put everything behind her. Police Constable Normand Belair addresses the situation. We have no leads or information that makes it of any interest for us to go forward in the investigation. The article closes by mentioning that although Debbie hadn't eaten for four days, she refused an offer of food from detectives the night that she was found. She was given a lie detector test and passed. Debbie Robinson graduated that spring. At the ceremony, her classmates gave her a standing ovation. She must have eventually made a that job interview with the insurance company because she went on to a very successful career uh, in insurance brokerage. Uh, She got married, had a child. Um, Rather than tell you the rest of the story, I'll read uh, from an article written about Debbie by Montreal Gazette columnist uh, Peggy Curran. Curran had been following Debbie's life for over 25 years. On May 3rd, 2011, she wrote this article. It's a, it's an extraordinary story, and I can't improve on Peggy Kern's uh, words. I'll pick this up just toward the, the end. Summer slipped into fall, and the story faded from the public's attention, eclipsed by other news events. A bombing at Central Station on the eve of a federal election left two French tourists dead. Brian Mulroney won the conservative landslide. Pope John Paul II came to Canada. Meanwhile, Debbie Robinson broke up with her high school sweetheart. She went back to school, then took a job with Aon Corps, where she would meet her future husband, Darren Williams. As Deborah Lynn Williams, she rose through the ranks to become assistant vice president of the Fortune 500 insurance brokerage. In 2000, she accepted a transfer to the company's New York office. The couple moved to Hoboken, New Jersey, where Debbie gave birth to their daughter, Peyton, six months later. Aon Corp's New York office 
was located on the 92nd, 99th, and 100th floor of Two World Trade Center. That's where Debbie Robinson was working on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. She was 35, the survivor of a harrowing Montreal mystery. She was among the 2,752 people who died in the World Trade Center when airliners crashed into the Twin Towers in a terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda terrorists masterminded by Osama bin Laden. Turning back to the Teresa Pearson case, it's still unsolved. The geography of that case is very tight, very clustered. It gets you thinking that someone who lived in the neighborhood at the time might have committed the murder. Which is why I'm including the address and telephone directories of the people who lived in that area in 1983 and 84 on my website, teresalor.com. So if you're a sleuther, you can go to the site. Maybe someone else can do some investigation, pick it up, put the pieces together. This is Who Killed Teresa? I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourself a great, great day.
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. True Crime on A&E, with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking True Crime, every Thursday and Friday on A&E.